How y'all doing? I'm Jonathan Smith, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 28, 2013. I have a sponsor, sponsor other men, and this is my home group. Um, thank you, Nicolette, for the for the grand introduction. I appreciate it. Um, See, so yeah, I'm supposed to tell you in a general way what I was like, what happened, and what I'm what I'm like today. And uh, more importantly for me, it's how I established and maintained a relationship with God. That's the single-handedly the most important thing to me today. Um, so I grew up about 20 miles east of here in Clayton, North Carolina. Um, I didn't have a very dramatic or impressionable childhood. And I, I come from two middle-class parents that gave me everything that I needed, most of what I wanted growing up. I, was, I knew I was loved. Um, I knew that they cared about me and none of that stuff. But um, from a very early age, I can remember feeling feeling fear. And the book describes it as self-centered fear, but I didn't know that I was experiencing it then. I mean, the, one of the earliest memories I have was I was in like first or second grade, and I remember going to meet my teacher for the first time, and all the students were there. And I just remember walking into that class and feeling like everybody was staring at me, that none of the kids in there liked me, that I was just different, you know. And that's a feeling that went with me up until the moment I started drinking. Um, drinking was the only thing that relieved that that dark hole of self-centeredness, you know. Um, I, mean, I had a pretty normal childhood up until the moment I started drinking. I was I started drinking at the ripe old age of 15. Um, you know, uh, none of my... As soon as I took that first drink, my I, I mean, we planned it and stuff. My friend, you know, he, he already drank before. One of my like, best friends growing up, he uh, started drinking like a month before me, and he was explaining to me how it was and all that stuff. And... Um, we figured it out, we planned it out, and he was going to steal some Crown Royal from his parents' liquor cabinet and come over to my house and spend the night that night, and he did that. And I remember I taking that, he filled up a Fruitopia bottle full of Crown, came over, and I just started chugging it, man. I didn't know what else to do, so I just started chugging it, and I just remember immediately feeling like everything was going to be okay. Just like the, the, the warmth all over my body, the feeling of six foot being six foot tall and bulletproof. Um, I don't know. Like I just, it, it, I'm, it's like that's the feeling I was looking for my entire life, you know. And I found it, found it that day. Nothing else mattered at that moment. Up until that moment, I wasn't a straight A student. Never have been. I was a solid C student, you know. But uh, <laughs> nothing else mattered, man. Like I was passing my grade and I was doing doing all right in school. But like two, like as soon as I, I was at that moment, like I was waiting to turn 16 so I could uh, drop out of high school and just do what I like. I, my priorities flipped. Upside down. Uh, another really important thing happened that day. I was I, I loved women then, but I was scared to death of them. Like I couldn't go up and talk to a girl. Like I would clam up like a oyster every time I'd, a girl that I like would come around, and I would just get really awkward and really uh, really shy and stuff. And um, there was a girl that lived in my uh, lived next door to me that I was absolutely head over heels for, and she had no clue that I was in love with her the way I was. But she was a little bit older than me, so she was. Um, she was driving, and uh, me and my friend, we just got drunk, and we were out in the cul-de-sac skateboarding, and uh, I saw her drive up, and um, I walked over to her house immediately, and stood on the porch and talked to her for like an hour. I made her laugh. I made her, I felt like I could finally talk to women, and that was like, that did something to me, man. Like That, that did something to my mind. Like, when I drink, these things happen. Like, I'm no longer that awkward kid that don't talk to anybody that... Everybody makes fun of or whatever. Like I can actually talk to girls and have a good time and make them laugh and stuff, you know. 
And that's something I carried with me up until the minute I got sober. Like, all of that, that stuff went away, man. Like, the end of my drinking looked completely different. I couldn't stay out of jail. Didn't have any relationships with people. I would get and wake up in the holding cell, not know what I was there for. I had multiple charges. I was looking at prison time. And, but I would still remember that time I made that girl laugh. That's the power alcohol had on me, you know? Um, forget about all the other stuff that happened to me. Like, the, all the consequences and the, like, alcohol was, it was my solution. But, um, so yeah, like, I turned 16, I dropped out of school. I convinced my parents to, that I was going to go to work, which I tried to do, but I would get jobs that would just allow me to drink and stuff. I started doing construction and electrical work and stuff when I was 16. Um, they weren't happy about it, but I really want much they could do. Um... So from 16 to when I got sober at 23, it's real, it's real blurry. Well, what I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt is that I was a, I was a very selfish and self-centered person. Um, it was all about me. I didn't care about anybody else but me. Like, if I did something nice for somebody, it was because I wanted something in return. And, like, I would use that as collateral at a later date. Um, I wasn't a good son. I wasn't a good father. Uh, I became a father not too long after that. I wasn't a good brother, wasn't a good member of society. Um, I took and took and took until I couldn't take anymore. Uh, so yeah, I um, also, around that time when I dropped out of school, I, my, my mom bought me like a little $500 pink Ford Escort at a buy here, pay here place. Didn't have a hood or anything, but that car, I drove that car into the ground. It was one of the best cars I've ever had to this day. Man. I couldn't kill that thing. But um. I willingly was homeless. I had that car, and I moved out, moved into the car, and I was hanging out with a lot of people that were doing um, a lot of bad stuff. You know, all the people that I grew up with, I was hanging, like, became friends with, are either dead or in prison now for a very long time. And it's an act of God that I did. I'm not there with them because I was doing exactly the same stuff they were doing. Um, we would just tear up the streets of Johnson County, man. Like, I really don't know how else to explain it. Like, I, I mean, I remember at one point being hungry. And breaking into committing a felony, breaking and entering into a trailer off Bar Mill Road to steal hot dogs out of the refrigerator and eat. Like that's that's and that was normal to me. Like that wasn't something uncommon. It's something that we would do. You know, thinking back on, it, I probably could have stole something a little bit more valuable if I was committing the crime. You know, but uh, <laughs> I was just hungry, man. I was an honest thief. But uh, I um I don't know, man. Like I I remember about. That lasted about three or four months, and my mom and my sister found me. I have a sister who's nine years younger than me. And uh, they found me, and I remember them sitting there tell, like looking at me. And my mom just looked um, confused. She was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing here? And I could just see, like, the pain in her eyes kind of. And I was at this point kind of tired of doing it, too, and I wanted to get my act together. And my mom and dad got divorced when I was 14, something I forgot to talk about. Some they both moved back to Raleigh. Uh, my dad moved back to Raleigh immediately. My mom stayed in Clayton for like a year or two, and then she ended up moving back to Raleigh, where they're both from. And um, she already was living in Raleigh at this point, so she convinced me to come live with her, come move back in with her, and I did. Uh, and I kind of, like, I wanted to, I, all my friends were graduating high school. They were starting to go to go to college. Um, I was seeing stuff on, like, running into people and just hearing how good they were doing. So I, I kind of started to want to change a little bit, you know? And um, I moved back in with them and started going to GED classes. I placed high enough when I was, so back when I went and got my GED, like if you place high enough in the general test, you can test, you can like test out. I wasn't that smart, but like 
I, taste, I tested right below that, so all I had to do was take five tests in each subject, or one test in each subject to pass, and I would get my GED. Normally, it takes a normal person two weeks to do. It took me five years to get my GED. Um, I took a test per year. Like, I went there and immediately found there was a lot of people in GED class that wanted to do the same things I wanted to do. You know? it, it did not take long to find, like, we would... We'd go on smoke break. We could smoke cigarettes. You know, that was the other cool thing about it. It was different than high school. But uh, we'd take a cigarette break and end up riding around Raleigh, buying all sorts of outside issues and doing all sorts of things that aren't meant to talk about at the podium. And, uh, I mean, it's just a my, – my priorities got flipped once again. Like, with no, no power at all. You know, like once something was offered to me that could get me outside of myself and make me feel the way I wanted to feel, I took it immediately. And – um. You know, uh, drugs are a part of my, my story. The drugs I like to do allowed me to stay up for two or three days and drink. Drinking was always my number one, but anything that would help my drinking, I like to do that too. And uh, I made some friends with people that were they were distribution spe specialists of this outside issue. And uh, we were drinking and doing stuff for, for days, man. And um, I bounced around a lot too. I'm trying to remember like where I was living. Like I, I went from Cary to Raleigh to Clayton in like a six-year period where I would move and just couch surf. And like wherever I could stay long enough, I would end up staying. And I ended up in Cary on Buck Jones Road at this, at this moment. And um, I remember it was like a, I was waking up. I finally went to sleep, and I was waking up one afternoon. I don't even want to say morning. Waking up one afternoon, and I just remember waking up and feeling like there was a, there was an in, there was a, I just, impending doom. I felt like something really bad was going to happen. And that's not uncommon. Like, normally when I woke up after a bender, I would get that feeling. But I remember, start to remember some of the stuff I was doing the night before and who I got in a fight with or who I owed money to or who I pissed off that was looking for me. But this was different. Like, I couldn't shake the feeling. I couldn't remember anything that I did. And um, long story short, I kind of had an aha moment. Um, I was like, man, maybe I need to stop doing what I'm doing. And my mom had a – it's her – husband now but they just they just uh they just met they were dating he's from vermont and he owned a sheetrock and framing company up in vermont and he offered he would go over there for like six months to work and come back and he offered me a job like a year before and i didn't take it but i called him and I, that that night i was on a greyhound on the way to vermont um to work uh you know, I, I realized all the stuff that I was doing. The book talks about at some moment in every alcoholic's career they could have done the about phase if they have good enough reason to do to. And I, I feel like I teeter-totted on the good enough reason to do to. Like I almost had a good enough reason, but no, no reason was good enough for the power that alcohol had on me, the effect that alcohol had on me, man. Like had to get to where it got with me for me to be willing to give it up, you know. But I moved up to Vermont and never did another drug in my entire I haven't done a drug since, and I was 21 years old when it happened. Um, so let me back up a little bit. This is important to my story now. Um, I had a kid around 18 years old when I was still right before I moved back to Raleigh. Uh, um, she got she moved here from Maryland, and within three months of her being here, she was pregnant. And within a year and a half of being here, she moved back to Maryland with my daughter. Um, I just completely destroyed that that chick, but. Uh, Anyway, so she was pregnant, and my, my idea of how I was going to, how that was going to work was she told me she was pregnant, and I was like, i got to figure it out. What I'm going to do is I'm going to break up with you for nine months. We're not going to be together. I'm going to go out and get all this stuff out of my system. I'm going to go do what I want to do for nine months, and then we're going to get back together. 
And the craziest thing is that she, we did that. You know what I mean? Like, like it's really selfish, man. Like, now that I look back on it, like, she stuck around for nine months, and she called me when she was on the way to the hospital, and I, I went up there, and uh, it's like we just picked right back up, you know? But um, it's weird, dude. <laughs> um, but when she got out of the hospital, like, we were, they had to induce labor. Like, we were in the hospital for, like, three days, and uh, she was born. She was born healthy. Her name's Cheyenne. Um, healthy little girl, you know, and uh, I remember coming home with her from the hospital, and it was like either that afternoon or the day after, it was like one of those days, Amber was like, watch the baby, I'm going to go get cigarettes, and she was going for like 10 minutes, and in that 10 minute period, I was holding my daughter, and I no longer looked at her as a daughter, I looked at her something that got in between me and drinking, I was like, this is going to really screw my drinking up, and without even a like, even the, the good demon, the good, or the bad demon and the angel on my shoulder, they won't know angel on my shoulder. It was just, I, I made my mind up to abandon my daughter as soon as she got home because it got in the way of my drinking. And that's something that, to this day, I still make amends for, to my, to my daughter for that. Um, so she got home and I bounced. I left, told her I wasn't going to get cigarettes now, and I drove back to Clayton and did what I was going to do. I didn't see her. I think she was five years old the next time I saw her. But uh, anyway, back to Vermont. So I moved up to Vermont, and uh, remember that that feeling of impending doom that I had like a week after I got to Vermont. The the place I was staying at, a Buck Jones Road, with the distribution specialist got raided by the carry cops, and we were selling stuff to undercover cops for like a year, and uh, they had a building case on us and stuff, and um, I just had like that was really God. I, mean, I don't know how to explain it. He knew I won't suited for prison, I guess. Cause <laughs> I, uh, I got out of there, man. But I can tell you now that my drinking really progressed. I, I was 21 years old and went to Vermont, and my drinking skyrocketed up there. Like there's, uh, if you're from Vermont and here, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking crap about Vermont. What I'm about to say, but there was nothing to do up there but to work and get drunk. You know, like there, there was. I mean, I was from the South. It was cold. Um, they sell 30 packs of beer. They sell really strong IPAs, you know, like it's a, it's real easy to cross the line up there, you know. Um, it, it was up there, like, before I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't allow myself to drink before noon. It was like this unwritten law that I had in my head. It's like only alcoholics drink before lunchtime. So I would, like, stare at the clock sometimes and wait for it to turn lunchtime to drink. But that's what I would do when I... When I was in Vermont, that no longer mattered. I'd start drinking at nine. I was making really good money over there. I was had my own apartment and stuff. Um, I don't know, man. Like I, I became a completely. I, I, I only lived there six months before I, everybody got tired of me and I lost my job and all that stuff. And I came back down here. But uh, I was a completely different person when I came back in six months. Man, I was 21 years old, was barely old enough to drink, and was already drinking alcoholically. You know. Um, I don't know when it when it happened for me specifically, but it was it was around that time where I was just out of control, you know. I was powerless over alcohol, you know. And um so yeah, I mean I, I, everything was fine. I, I started drinking in the morning. By six o'clock I'd be falling down the steps drunk. I, I, I lived with my boss and his wife. I would get drunk and be in a blackout and try to sleep with my boss's wife right in front of him. Um Yeah. It was good stuff, but uh, I um, the final the thing that did me like I was I was like I said making good I made like eight hundred dollars a week back then, which is really good money for me back then, and uh, now it's still good money. But um, I uh, 
Um, I spent all my money on drinking. Like I, I, like I said, I wasn't doing drugs, and I was just drinking. And I had in my there was no bathroom, so I had to use the bathroom inside the house. And I was always so insanely drunk, I didn't want to go inside the house to use the bathroom. It's just supposed to be. Just leave it down there. You just lay down. But um, anyway, I would uh. I wouldn't want to go outside, so I, I mean, I wouldn't want to go in the house, so I'd go outside in Vermont where it's like negative 10 degrees and go to the bathroom outside. I would, that didn't last. I got, I locked myself out one time. I had to wake him up and I thought I was going to die, man. It was so cold. But, uh, so what I had, I had this like brewing idea. It's like, well, I have all these beer cans for me drinking, so I'm going to fill, I'm just going to pee in these beer cans that are here. So I had like, I had tw- like a dozen, I had like 60, 70 empties and like, 24 beer cans of pee in it and when it got to where I could smell the pee I would take them outside and pour them out and then get, get rid of everything well one day when I was at work my um, <laughs> my boss's my boss and his wife had I thought it was smart you know, an engineer over here, Marshall he, he, where's Marshall? Yeah, he gets it but uh, while I was at work one day they had the, my boss had two kids they were like 7 and 9 at the time and they had like they had little iPads and little like technology and stuff. So they were running around the house making a YouTube video of themselves. And they they found themselves in my room. And I guess they thought it would be fun to pretend like they were drinking beer on their YouTube channel. And they got a mouthful. Like, they drank my pee. And the mom wasn't, the, the mom wasn't very uh, happy about it. So that was the final straw. It wasn't me trying to sleep with her all the time. It was, it was that. But, um... So yeah, I came back. I, I tried to stay there, and I had I kept my job and everything, but the cost of living. So I ended up back in North Carolina. Uh, I was like 22. Um, dang, I forgot. So I, I got my first DUI at 20 right before I moved to Vermont. Um, that's important because I, got, I, I remember when I got my first DUI, it was literally like my Welcome to Manhood card. Like anybody that I hung out with at least had one DUI, like... If not more, you know what I mean? Like, so it really wasn't that big a deal. I actually, my friends took me to the bar for, well, like, as soon as I got out of jail, they took me and got me drunk. So that happened before, so I had that going on. Um, I don't know, man. Like, come back from Vermont, like I said, I was no longer, I wasn't the same person. Like, before drinking would be, it was a solution. Like, it was a power. Like, it made me feel how I wanted to feel. Like I could accomplish anything when I was drinking, you know? And that's why I was so easy. I was so, I, I so easily let go of that other stuff because alcohol always did what I wanted to do. It's like old faithful, you know. And um, but that wasn't like when I came back. It's like alcohol. It's like I'm just gonna paraphrase what Bill Wilson says because he really literally explains it best in Bill's story. He said that it was a drinking was like a boomerang. He was forging a weapon that would one day turn around and all but cut him to ribbons. Like me drinking to produce an effect in me. To get outside of the way that I felt, to make me feel how I wanted to feel, and I did that on a consistent enough basis where it literally it was starting to turn back on me, and it showed it really started to show its face in in Vermont when I came back from Vermont. Like I was a violent drunk. Um, I remember me and my sister, my mom, to this day she was living in Andrew when I got back, and I don't know why she moved to Andrew, but uh, so I was living in Andrew. Um, I was walking to I didn't have a car, so I had a DUI or whatever, and I didn't. Uh, I'm a license all that stuff, so I was walking to the BP, like three and a half miles through the fields and stuff to go get beer, and uh, just hating myself, man. And, like me and my sister got in an argument one one day, and I like, 
instead of burning a mattress or throwing a mattress out the window, I ripped the I ripped the island countertop off her thing for no reason at all. Like me and my sister gonna argue the day I was in a bad mood and I was drunk and I just ripped the countertop off her stuff and that stuff was just kind of normal. Um, I, I maintained some friendships while I was in Vermont. I didn't never really had that many friends. I, you know, if I had five solid friends, that was a big deal to me. You know, at this point, I had like two, and uh, I maintained. I kept in contact with them, so I got back and we started drinking. And I used to hang out with a guy named Scotty a lot. Uh, Scotty was he liked to party like I liked to party. He was a I always, he was one of the guys you would see at a at a keg party and be like, if I ever get like Scotty, I'm not gonna drink anymore. <laughs> and um, Scotty drank with me one time when I got back from Vermont, and I never talked to him again. He t- and he told me he was like. I can't drink with you, man. I can't. Like, you can't. You're you're too crazy. And I'm like, who are you to tell me I'm crazy? You know what I mean? Like, don't you know? Like, you're the crazy one. But like, little did he know. Like, that was one of the first times I ever looked at myself. Like, I I stopped. And be like, you know, maybe this ain't really normal. You know. But uh, that was about it. Um. So uh, I ended up getting my license back from the first DUI about six or seven months after I got um. Got back from Vermont. Uh, my uncle sold me a car. I was getting like a hundred bucks every week. I went back to work. So I worked brief for the company I work for now. I worked for them back when I was drinking, and I would work for like four or five months, quit. Work for like nine months and quit. And I was on one of the little nine month stints at the time with uh, my dad, and my dad worked there. And uh, so I mean, everything was kind of going good in that respect. But um, I don't know. Like I, my drink was just getting out of control. Like I was drinking in the morning. I was often blacking out, you know, I, I, I got to where, I mean, I was 20, 22 years old, man, I, I drank a, I used to be able to, like, drink cases of beer, man, and now, like, when I drink a 40 or a, because I was at that point where I was drinking 40 ounces, and, um, I drink a half a 40 and be, like, blitz, you know, like, my body wasn't processing alcohol like it used to, um, so, yeah, I was, uh, let's see what I was doing, it gets blurry, but, um, anyway, so, I, I was seeing this girl. It's like the, towards the end of my end of my drinking. Um, I had this idea that if I just get a decent girl, like I wanted to change who changed my life. You know, like I noticed everybody around me my age that were they had family, starting families, and they're buying houses and stuff. And I'm still living with my mom and couch serving between mom and dad and friend or whatever, and just getting off, uh, getting my license back. And it feels like I'm starting over all the time. You know, and I was like, I just need a girl, man. That's like got her stuff together. Doesn't like to do the stuff I like to do, and I'll, I'll be. I'll be all right, you know, and I, God's cool. Like, he gave me the girl I was asking for. Like, she was a registered nurse, owned her own house, had a car, uh, had her stuff together, man. And um, that did not help at all, you know. <laughs> uh, just, and she was, like, she was the kind of person, she'd go to the club on Friday night and go and drink like I drink on Friday night and then shut it off Saturday, shut it off Sunday and go to work. And I just, like. We were we got along fine Friday night, you know what I mean? But like I could never shut it off. And she told me, she was like, if you she was like, You when you're not drunk, Jonathan, you're one of the best people I've ever ever been with. You know, like I but she was like, I know I can't tell you that you can't drink. And that was her way of telling me that she didn't want me to drink at all the way I was drinking. And I got it, I want to, but you know what I mean? So I tried to stop drinking for her, you know, and I couldn't do it. And I really wanted to stop drinking for her. Like I knew that I wanted, like, she was somebody worth being with, and I wanted, like, I was, like, no, for all the emotional appeal, right? Like, I, no matter how hard I tried to quit drinking for outside reasons, I, I just couldn't do it, and uh, not even for her, and, um, so she more or less broke up with me one Sunday when I was drunk, and, uh, 
I got in my car and it was around Halloween time. I heard there was a grave rave in downtown Raleigh from somewhere. So I was driving to downtown Raleigh. I've been drinking uh, Wild Irish Rose and beer all day long. Uh, I was going like 120 miles an hour down 40. And this, it's, fun, it's kind of funny now, but like I could have killed somebody. You know, um, I don't even remember. Like I, anyway, I was, I was driving 120 miles an hour, swerving down 40 to get to downtown Raleigh. Uh, somebody called Star HP on me. I got pulled over. Cop didn't. He, I just remember looking at the cop, and I remember being in the cop car. Like he, there was no really altercation. I remember being mad, and I was calling the cop names, and he ended up hog tying me and putting me in the spit mask and stuff. You know, <laughs> I got my second DUI, and I, I don't know how drunk I was at the moment, but five hours later, being in jail, calmed down enough where they could finally breathalyze me. I blew a point two nine, and um. So, I, mean, I was on the verge of alcohol poisoning, you know, uh, and that was just just another day, you know. Um, I uh, it wasn't fun anymore. You know, my first DUI was my it's like oh I'm a man now or whatever. At this point, like I hate myself. Like I I really like I really wanted to stop doing what I was doing, man. Like I wanted to be successful. I wanted to I wanted to change I wanted to change my life. Like I wanted success i wanted a career i wanted a girl like one of these things and it's like no matter how bad i wanted it none of that won't or none of that stuff was more powerful than the effect alcohol had on me you know i would maintain that won't i'd wake up hung over one morning and main and be like i really gotta stop doing this and this is what i want and i would last three and a half hours and i'd be drunk again I, my brain would have already taught me into drinking again I, I couldn't even last a day uh i remember getting a police report and reading the police report and thinking they were lying because I was in a blackout and like some of the stuff that they like I caught was calling the cops I was slamming my head into the cop car like I was calling I was I can't repeat the names of calling the cops you know like I was just it wasn't I, I didn't believe them and when I the magistrate like signed me and I was able to leave jail or whatever and I grew up in this area I was so drunk I told my mom I was in Wake Forest and I was right here on Hammond Road like I'm from this area and I'm so drunk I didn't even know where I was at but uh I don't know why they let me go, but um, I don't know. Like I signed myself out of jail, ain't signing shit, ain't doing shit. Like a, with a winky smiley face. That's how I signed myself out of jail. You know, um, just bad man. Like bad times. But I, I that was the first time I like I I was beginning like in the vision view talks about jumping off place. Can't not being able to imagine life with or without alcohol. And I was there. Like I when I remember. Reading that police report, I remember thinking, it's like, I can't do that. I can't keep drinking. And as soon as that thought came, another thought would come. It was like, well, you know that you're going to drink again. And you know other people drink. And it's like, yeah, you're right. Like, I am probably going to drink again. It's like, I didn't have any power over him, man. And uh, that was around October of 2012. I got sober January 2013. And that, that the next three months, I tried really hard to either quit or to control my drinking. I'm talking like real hard. Like you're like, you know, you, when you try to play a video game and you, and you try to do really good at it, that's how I was trying to drink. Like I was like, if I only drink Fridays and if I only drink beer and I don't leave the house, nothing bad can possibly happen. Nothing bad can possibly happen if I do those things. Like, and, um, my last drunk was a Sunday on moonshine and I had three more charges, but anyway, uh, I wasn't able to do it. But it's like I, I would tell myself that I would give myself these different equations and these different s scenarios of how I could drink successfully. And that's why I was so 
profound and powerful when I got sober and started reading the book. Because I literally, the book put words to things that I tried to explain or things that I experienced for a long time, man. And it, they finally put in words, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I was doing that. Um, one of the lowest po points in my life, man, was I, was I was at my dad's apartment, so drunk at like 5.30 in the afternoon. I couldn't even, I was leaning on his door, looking at his doorknob, so drunk I couldn't even, every time I tried to stand up and open the door, I'd fall down. So at this point, I'd given up. I'm just looking at it like I can't go inside the house, you know, getting to open the door. And the neighbor came out with her kid, and her, um, her kid was like four or five years old, and there I am in my early 20s, laying there like a hobo, leaned up against the door or whatever, and she like shooed her son away from me. She's like, come walk on this side, like away from me. And I was just really low point in my life, man. That's kind of where I was at. And that accompanied with just insane, the insidiousness of alcohol, knowing that I want to stop and I don't want to keep doing the things that I'm doing, but keep drinking against my will anyway is a really scary place to be, man. And I only survived it for three months. And uh, my last drunk was on January 27th. I remember... I had court coming up for um, for my DUI and all that stuff, and I just remember feel, waking up feeling really uncomfortable in my own skin, feeling like I was gonna crawl out of my own skin. Like I just felt really bad, and like now I know it was, it was, I was withdrawing because I was not drink, trying, purposely not drinking as much as I normally was. So I was withdrawing from alcohol, and I know that me and my dad went half on a half gallon of moonshine. I knew that we had that in the freezer, and. Uh, I thought, I'm just going to have one drink. So I put on Leonard Skinner. It's like 8 o'clock in the morning. So I put on Leonard Skinner and made myself a drink. Started shooting darts. And like the next thing I remember is Leonard Skinner was on really loud. And I was at the freezer tipping the bottle at this. It's like I drank that drink. The effect happened. And I was like a robot, man. An autopilot going right back to the bottle. And uh, that was on a Sunday. I ended up catching... Another charge that day, uh, me and my dad, my dad came home and started helping me finish the bottle. And uh, me and him went on a tear in North Raleigh and ended up getting cops called on us. We got in a fight with a pit bull. And uh, <laughs> a homeowner called the cops. Um, we were both insanely drunk. Um, I got charged with, he was the one who attacked the pit bull. I love animals, okay, so. Uh, but I lied to the cops to defend them. And um, they charged me the same thing he got. And, uh, I don't know, man. Like, I just remember... I just remember being in, being in that state. My mom coming to pick me up. So my dad was... The, the homeowner also came out and hit my dad in the head with a chair. So he was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. My mom came and got me. It was a Jerry Springer, Johnson County stuff. Man. But, uh... Just another weekend. But, um... I just remember having a moment of clarity. Dirt drunk off moonshine and i remember things like i can't my, my moment of clarity was like i can't quit drinking alone because till that moment i thought that i could do this thing alone i thought that i could control it that if i if i just tried hard enough i could control my drinking or i could stop when it got bad enough but it it got bad enough and there wasn't nothing i could do about it and um my mom my uncle and everybody in my family who were, cared about me been trying to get me to quit drinking for a long time but i finally saw it for myself and that's literally what i'm like, something happened when that thought came in. It was like a thought that was more powerful than any other thought I had. It's like, I can't quit drinking alone. And I asked my mom for help. Uh, I was trying to get her to take me to some co-ed co rehabs or whatever to find them. But my sister actually found the healing place in Wade County. It's like an all-men's homeless shelter. 
and it was it just happened to be like we were driving down 440 and she was like oh it's only 0.2 miles away i'm like god dang man and like <laughs> i begged her to i begged her to stop and give me another tall boy i was like we're gonna, i'm gonna drink more beer and i'm gonna quit forever and she wouldn't do it and i cussed her slam out all the way from where that happened to the healing place and um a few important things happened when i got to the got to the healing place um I saw, we're sitting there in detox, there's a guy there named Larry, he don't work there anymore, his name was Larry. He said, he said something to me, two things to me that I absolutely needed to hear, man, and I didn't even know I needed to hear it. But he looked at me, and I didn't even know this dude, you know what I mean? But he looked at me, he was like, Jonathan, you're not alone, and you never have to drink again. And I don't know what it was about those two things, man, like that language of the heart, you know, like, when he said that to me, it just annihilated, like, it just crushed everything that I had, man, I was like, I just felt like I knew he was telling me the truth, you know. I knew that he understood where I was coming from and I wasn't alone. And um, my mom was crying, and I remember her telling Larry that she was like, alcohol is taking my son from me. And I'm like, those things together, that stuff happened before, but like, whatever, it's all there being dramatic. But for some reason, like, not the Larry thing, but my mom crying and stuff, like, what happened, I was like, I just need to get over it. But for some reason, like, it sank in. Like, I saw it. You know, I saw the damage I was doing. My sister was like at 15, 16 years old then, and like she was there. She like just witnessed me coming to homeowner with a baseball bat, trimming dad with a chair, and like I just started to see the truth in my life, like see the truth in the situation that I was in. And um, I don't know, like so I, I, I decided to go to the home place and to stick it out. And uh, you know, I, I went there. Um, I remember waking up in the scrubs. I thought I was like, well, I thought I was in jail because I was drinking a lot of moonshine that day. And I remember waking up that Monday morning thinking that I was in jail, and I was like, what the hell can I jail if I wear scrubs? You know? It was like no orange or nothing, man. And um, I was so used to waking up in jail, you know. But uh, I don't know. Like I would meet people. Like people come in there and talk to me, and they would, they would talk to me in a way that was different than everybody else. Like they would, they would talk to me about themselves and how they used to drink. And um, they didn't tell me what I needed to do. They were like, hey, this is the way I was. This is what I used to do, and this is what I'm doing now and the stuff that they used to do was the exact same stuff I used to do and I identified with them and um, they would say things like if you want what we have and do what we've done and uh, I got a good good core group of guys like early on man in sobriety that were we were all on the same path and uh, I saw the doctor after being in detox for three days the doctor told me that if I was continued to drink the way I was drinking I want to live to see 30 years old um, the whites of my eyes are yellow from I guess my liver, uh, my liver is like 20% large. I have, my liver hurt. I mean, like, I remember getting a, getting my year chip and my liver was still a little sore. Like, my liver hurt for a long time. I thought I had cirrhosis of the liver and stuff. So one of the things I was like, well, I'm probably dying of cirrhosis anyway, just keep drinking. But, um, like, I thought that I really damaged my body, you know, um, which I did. But, like, I didn't have cirrhosis, thank God. But my liver hurt, man. And, uh, I'm 33 now, so I made it. Um, I don't know, like, I, I just, I dove, I, I, I dove head first in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I remember just being very desperate to do whatever I had to do. Like, I didn't, I didn't care what I had to do, like, to get this, to get what you guys had. Like, I don't, I didn't, I didn't care. Whatever it was, I would have done. I just didn't want to go back to where I was living before. I, um, I got a sponsor, and we immediately started going through the book. Um, I got a sponsor who, when he talked to meetings, he, uh, talk about 
service and carrying message to other people and and um I don't know, like I I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. Like I I, I never had a hard time with that part of step one. Uh but I, I didn't think I was unmanageable there for a while. It took like some inst- like some serious it, like it took my sponsor sitting me down, but like you live in a homeless shelter, dude. You know what I mean? Like that's unmanageable, you know. And uh, like that's something that kind of kind of like the third step for me. Like it's like the longer I've stayed sober, the more I saw I see how unmanageable I was. But um, I learned that I had a I don't know. Like I, I would reading the book, like I would have these aha moments. Like this is exactly the things that happened to me, man. Like just put words on things that I never could understand or even try to explain um i uh my life has just gotten tremendously better i feel like i have a life that i don't even deserve now you know um and it's a direct result of alcoholics Anonymous, and uh it's a direct result of taking suggestions and not only did i like admit that i didn't know how to control my drinking or to stop drinking them on i also admitted that i don't know what's best for me you know like that was a big part of early recovery for me is like taking suggestions from my sponsor and like any major decision or any decision that I would made, I would run it. I would run it through my sponsor, run it through my network, you know, and like talk about it and stuff. Um, I really wanted this thing, man. Like I was extremely desperate not to drink again. I had a, I had a fear of drinking. It like, it was almost four steps, like the first two, four steps I did. Like I had the huge fear of relapsing. I didn't want to relapse, man. I was like overly upset, obsessed about doing things the right way, you know? And, um, I can tell you that coming to Alcoholics Anonymous and surrendering and working the steps and just doing what, like, the, for me, it was like the, the, I realized that the path has been trudged before I got here. Like, Alcoholics Anonymous has been, people, alcoholics have been getting sober through Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time before I, before I got here. I don't have to do anything different. Everything I need to do is in this book. And um, that's what me and, my, me and my sponsor did. We, we met every Saturday and read the book. I realized that I, I didn't have the power to con, to change my situation or to restore my own sanity. That the power must come from something greater than me. And at first, that power was Alcoholics Anonymous. Like I made a decision to go forward with the rest of the steps and to meet with my sponsor on a regular basis and to believe that if I do these things and if I try to do things just a little bit different, that things will change for me. And that little tiny bit of faith was just enough. Move on with the rest of the steps. I, I did a third step. Um, I remember him picking me up one Saturday, and we went to St. Michael's Church, like the bus- busiest church in Wake County, and we got on our knees and said a prayer. And I was super embarrassed, you know, because like people walking around us, but I did it, man. I, it didn't matter if I didn't want to drink again. And he told me a good gauge of how honest of a third step I did was how fast I could start on a fourth step, and he pointed out the whole break. Next, we launched on a course of vigorous action, and I started writing an inventory and. I can tell you that um, a few things happened in my inventory. Uh, I started to see how my entire life I made decisions based out of self. I made decisions based out of fear that either directly, like immediately, or indirectly affected me. Like I saw that on paper for the first time when I was writing my four step, and my sponsor pointed out some other defects. But I can tell you that since um, since my first time going through the steps, I haven't been arrested. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't cheated on a girlfriend. I haven't gotten a fist fight. Like a lot of the things that I would do on a regular basis before I worked the steps, 
were removed from me the very first time I did a fourth and fifth step. And I literally just wrote out, wrote an inventory just like the book says, and I talked to my sponsor about it. There's nothing, there was nothing magical about it. I mean, I guess it was magical, but it was really simple, man. Um, we did step six and seven, and I started, I started writing in a, writing the eight step list. And um, this is for me like going through steps four, five, six, and seven. Like I, I, I felt like I was a part of AA, you know, but. The real power and the real God of my understanding came to me um, when I was making amends. And I, I want to touch on a few, a few amends. So when I got sober, I had, had like four, three or four charges in two different counties, man. Like I, my attorney told me that there were, he couldn't get me out of going to prison. And he told me that the way that I acted, the DA was seeking maximum sentence for my last DUI, and they were trying to hit me in a pitchable. I didn't know they could do or whatever, but I got two DUIs in a short amount of time. So um, they were trying to throw the book at me, man. And uh, I, I just happened to get, you know, I, I just happened to get sober while all this was going on, and my attorney was continuing it and stuff. And I was at the healing place like six months, and when I went, got sentenced for sentenced for that, and uh, I never spent a day in prison. I ended up having two weekends when I got out of the healing place. But um, I looked at, and my sponsor told me, "He's like, you're gonna, this is you're going to make an amend. You're going to you're going to go to court. And when come sentencing day, uh, he's like, you're going to go to court, and you're just going to own up." Kind of to what you what you did, and you're gonna take whatever they give you as an amends to the to the state. And um, luckily, I didn't have to go to prison. So I really I would have done it, but I really didn't want to do it. But uh, um, I uh, one New Year's Eve, right before I got sober, I, that girl that I was telling you about that I wanted to be with, tried to get me to stop drinking. Like she was talking to a guy at a bar, and I like, body slammed him on the hood of a car and like cr- crushed the car in. Got to talk about that or whatever. So I had that charge going on, destruction of private property, and I was going. This was in Benson. I was going to court in Benson, North Carolina. And I don't know if you know. They don't know about the healing place in Benson. Like they every every month, I would go to court or whatever. They would uh, ask me if I had the money, and I was like, No, dude. I'm in rehab. Like I'm going to get the money. Like as soon as I start working, I'm going to have it. I just need a continuance. So like every month for like nine or ten months, I would do that, and uh, finally was in phase two. I was actually working with Trey at the time. And uh, I had the money. I finally had enough money to pay it off. It's like a thousand dollars. I've been working, and um, I was at a part of the program where I, could, where I could work. I had the money to pay him, and the DA was like, and there was only like six people in the courtroom. He was like, Mr. Smith, I had your file this morning. I don't know what happened to it. I gotta drop it. I'm like, I gotta drop. You gotta drop it. And he was like, Yeah, I can't find your file. It's our bad. Have a good day. And I'm like. <laughs> I was like, I got the money to pay it. Like, y'all aren't going to arrest me and issue a warrant or whatever. He was like, nah, you're free to go. So, like, that was just things that, like, started happening. Like, I was already through the steps. I think I was on, like, steps 10 and 11 with my sponsor this time. And I was, like, living Alcoholics Anonymous as a way of life. Like, it shifted from me wanting to stop drinking and it changed everything about me to, like, actually living this, trying to practice the principles and, and all my affairs, you know. And, um... I also had to make an amend, like, and at this point, like, I was really, really ready to start sponsoring people. I was, had a burning desire to help other people, man. And uh, my sponsor said I had to make five amends, and the last amends was to an ex-girlfriend that I had that uh, I was a really bad person to. Um, she, last, I mean, she ended up dying right before I got sober drinking and driving, so I never really could apologize to her in person and amend the way that I was, but I was really evil to her the last time I saw her, and, uh, my sponsor suggested that uh, he showed me the part in the book where he talks about writing an honest letter. I thought it was really strange and weird or whatever. I was willing to do it. 
said a prayer and asked God to allow her to receive the message because she was in she was no longer here on earth and I wrote that letter and kind of read it out loud to her and that was it and like a week later my mom said that she talked to her mom the girl's name is Kelsey the Kelsey's mom called her and said that she found the letter Kelsey wrote me apologizing to me for the things that she was she never gave me the letter while she was alive but she wrote me a letter also like apologizing to me because we were like high school like back and forth girlfriend boyfriend you know what I mean like we did a lot of damage to each other but uh it's a good learning experience you know um that I completely became a hundred. I mean, I was ninety-eight percent old, and on Alcoholics Anonymous at this point, because the stuff that's happened or whatever. But I was a hundred percent sold on God, on Alcoholics Anonymous at that moment, and I told God right then and there that my life was His to do whatever He wanted me to do, and I made a decision to just try to help other people as much as I could, and just to literally throw myself at that point. At that moment, I knew for a fact that there was a God. There was nothing else that. Could explain it, um, and I went went on with the rest of the steps and started sponsoring people, and I literally do that today. Like I was told things early on, like get a like pray in the morning, pray at night, try to pray throughout the day, try not to think about yourself. And I, the things that I did when I was first getting sober are the things that I do now. You know, it's like things that worked then work now. Um, you know, I went from not being employable to. The company sending me to California. The same company I used to work for would show up and quit and show up drunk to shutdowns. And like I work for that company now, and they send me to California to represent the company in the national competition. You know, um, I, in August I got my electrical contracting license and uh, a job opened up for me to go work somewhere else. And I put in my notice, and they called me one Wednesday night when I was at the gym. The vice president and the labor manager of the company called me and begged me to stay with the company. And I was just mind-blowing. Like, and all that stuff's a direct result of alcohol. It ain't me. Like, it's what I've learned through sponsorships, where I've learned Alcoholics Anonymous and examples that's in this room, man. Like, I'm just trying to live a different way of life and trying not to think about myself all the time and just do things different, man. It all starts with actions. Like, the book talks about faith and works. Faith and works throughout the entire book. And I believe those things aren't separate entities. They're one entity. Faith and then works. Faith and then actions, you know. And um, I just try to try to live that motto, man. Um, I went from not being able to keep a girlfriend to just getting married. I have two kids that's never seen me drunk before. And I'm actually present in their life. Um, I have a relationship with my daughter, which is not easy. Um, but I've amended that relationship with my daughter the best that I can. Now I just try to be a present dad for her now she's like 15 going on 25 but it's not easy and i don't that's jerry like i don't know what to do half the time i just i get my wife to to handle it but um <laughs> the best i can do man but like alcoholics anonymous has given me a life that i could have never like my best ideas before like when i was drinking trying to trying to like when i had these scenarios in my head it's like this is where i want to be like Alcoholics Anonymous has given that to me and then some. Like, I came here only wanting to quit drinking, and it's it's gave me that and so much more, man. And uh, I'm forever indebted to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I just thank you guys for being here. Thank you, Nicolette.